You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Gators Breakdown. Because there's never a dull moment in Gator Nation. The Gators Breakdown podcast is ready to go. I am your host, David Waters, and you can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SEC. Joining me for the first time in quite a while is Will Miles. Uh, Will, we got together for our championship rewind of the 2008 game uh, a couple weeks ago, but uh, I was on vacation one week, uh, had some other stuff lined up, uh, just, you know, gave you some time off. Yeah, well, you know, we all got to see you going down that slide there on Twitter for while, while the recruits are coming in, Dave. So there there seems to be a split among the fan base as to whether that's the appropriate picture where we get a commit or whether we stick with the Mullen picture. I'm, I'm going to go with the Mullen picture, but, uh, you know, uh, use your judgment based on the quality of the recruit. Uh, yeah, I, I think uh, I think I have figured out maybe what we'll do. I would say if it's a if it's an offensive recruit, I'll do the Dan Mullen picture. If it's a defensive recruit, I'll do the slide. <laughs> a lot of slides this year. <laughs> yeah, a lot of good slides. Uh, how was the time off? Oh, it was good, man. I mean, it, you know, it's not really time off. It's just evenings to myself every once in a while. So that's always good. And, uh, you know, weather's starting to break a little bit here and get a little bit cooler. We had the hurricane come through yesterday. So um, managed not to float away and we're doing well. Everything, uh, yeah, health-wise, everything going good? Yeah, everything's good. We got, uh, you know, we, 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 got, we got our challenges just like everybody else. But, yeah. uh, you know, at the end of the day, um, like I said, there, there are people who have it worse than us up here. At the Schuylkill River down here in downtown Philly was flooding this morning. So um, luckily I'm a little bit away from there and, and didn't have to deal with any of that. Uh, we'll let our listeners know you've had a, a lot going on at uh, Read and Reaction uh, uh, the last couple of weeks or so. So a lot of a lot of articles out there. Uh, give our listeners uh, uh, a preview of what they can find on the site. Yeah, so we we had we had our old friend Bill Sykes come back and he talked a little bit about recruiting and and the guys from Palmetto High School and what that would mean to Florida's class. Though obviously that's at least recently been a little bit uh, been a little bit disappointing. And then we'll get um, into I, that. And then and then I had an article up about recruiting as well. And then we. Uh, um, you know, with all the stuff going on with the We Are United at, uh, at for the Pac-12 and certainly some of the Florida players getting involved with that, too. Um, I had uh, uh, Jordan Dorman, one of the, a former f- basketball player at Florida, come on the site and talk a little bit about what's, uh, what it's like to be an athlete at the at University of Florida. I thought it was pretty interesting. And then the uh, 
The Give Him Hell Pal series continues with Nick Knudsen. He's done a really good job. Recently was looking at sort of the impact that Charlie Pell had on the program back in the 80s and sort of his lasting legacy within the uh, within the Florida program, some of the stuff that he did with the booster programs that still exists today. It's a really interesting read. It's, it's actually my favorite one in the series thus far. So there's still a few more of those to come, and those are going to be coming out in the next few days as well. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Like I said, we've been – been busy. Gators Breakdown, Chevy Chip Rewind, uh, those two games. That was a lot of fun, hanging out with, uh, with some fellow fans and reliving the 06-08 championship games. A, a lot of fun there on, on, on Channel 4, the local station there. So uh, hopefully we get to do some stuff like that uh, again in the future. Hopefully that won't be the only game we get to watch as a, as a fan base together uh, with some people out there. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was kind of fun. I was sitting there going, I wonder if this is how Alabama fans feel right now. Because watching that 2008 game, it was like, we're invincible. We're going to win the next six championships. Meyer has two more number one classes coming in. And 2008 was was the was the peak, right? And, yeah. and the 09 team was good, but obviously didn't get the job done against Alabama. And then in 2010, the wheels really started to fall off. And, and you know, you sort of hope that's probably what's – you hope that's coming with Alabama. You hope that's coming with Georgia over the next couple of years. And we sort of see that same type of thing but uh certainly um you know more than anything i think we just all hope we get to see football this year and and with some of the changes that have been going on with each of the conferences and the sec included um it's going to be an interesting year and a different year but hopefully a a uh a good year for everybody involved yeah absolutely absolutely so as kind of will alluded to we'll get into a lot of there, there's a lot of stuff going on a lot of stuff to get into here uh on this episode of gators breakdown we'll get into the uh, sec we'll look at the 10 game schedule again i was supposed to be on vacation last week but i knew that was going to drop so you know little back and forth episode with you guys out there uh that I, I dropped last week when we found out about the 10 game schedule so will and i will get i'll get will stalts on the 10 game schedule uh, we'll talk about Kamar Wilcoxon um, re, re, uh, reclassifying uh, and, and being a 2020 commit and, or recruit and, and being on campus hopefully in a couple of weeks uh, and some recruiting news as well. But before we get to all that, remember, you can find Gators Breakdown on news4jacks.com slash Gators Breakdown. There you'll find all the Gators Breakdown episodes and news for jacks coverage of the Gators. Please share, rate, and review the show. Subscribe on YouTube or your favorite podcast platform and follow Gators Breakdown on social media on Twitter and Facebook at Gators Breakdown. So, Will, we are one reason we're coming to you live on a Wednesday night on YouTube. We tried to wait as long as we could before for the SEC to release the the schedule. As I said last week, we all know the ten game schedule. SEC conference only schedule was released last week for the SEC. The Big Ten released their games on Wednesday uh, today here. So uh, I was hoping the SEC would uh, would do their part and and, and release the schedule for us. So uh, the whole episode would have pretty much been about that. But uh, yeah, I know it will probably be tomorrow, and you'll get two Gators breakdown episodes this week if that's the case. But uh, uh, they, they couldn't help us out and give it to us uh, Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday. So we'll. 10-game SEC schedule. We still don't know the two opponents. Uh, the eight opponents, the eight SEC opponents from the regular schedule are still set. That would still be eight of the opponents for the Gators. Still awaiting two opponents for the Gators. But what's your thoughts on, uh, you know, generically a 10-game SEC conference-only schedule? I mean, normally I would love it, right? Because it means that you're getting unbelievable football for 11 straight weeks. I'm assuming there's going to be a bye week in there, maybe two bye weeks in there. Yeah, but one, you're one in get, the middle and one at the end if they have to make up a game. Yeah, so you're going to get an unbelievable slate of, of games, right? There are going to be good games on every week. And, you know, you get that game sort of right before the Florida State game where it's just a complete cupcake every year. And, you know, there's not a whole lot of si- excitement around that. And oftentimes the opener, everybody's excited for it. But, you know, last year we had Miami, but... 
oftentimes that one's not real exciting either. You don't have any of that this year, right? I mean, the, the first game this year, you're going to have to be ready to go right from the jump. And so that's exciting. The The downside is, is that this was the year where Florida had a favorable SEC schedule and a favorable over overall schedule. And Georgia, quite honestly, had a much more difficult schedule. And that's one of the reasons why I think people were picking Florida to be able to potentially get to a playoff and, and at least win the East. Doesn't mean they can't still win the East. Obviously, you want to go through the best when you, when you're the best. But um, this one this one had a little bit more. Uh, the schedule was an opportunity for Florida, and now that probably isn't going to be the case anymore because you know games against Eastern Washington and and you know whoever are going to be replaced by games potentially with Alabama and you know, Texas A and M or somebody like that. And if that's the case, we're going to get two more good games, which is fantastic. But obviously, it makes the road to Atlanta a little bit more difficult. Yeah, that's part of it, Will. We still don't know the two opponents, of course, the next two. A lot of people speculated last week that it would be uh, Alabama, Texas A&M, just because that was the next two non-permanent West opponents that Florida would face in 2021-2022. Um, that was something Ross Dillin- Dillinger kind of just threw out there. A lot of people took it and ran with it. Um, we, that, hey, look, it still could be that. Uh, we don't know. Um, it, it still could turn out to be that way, but he did admit he was just spitballing there, and it, and it kind of went crazy. So the SEC, uh, he, he, he later uh, tweeted that uh, they're going to try and use some kind of uh, strength of schedule model, and I was like, look, I, and I tweeted it out there. There needs to be some kind of transparency when you start talking about strength of schedule because, who, first of all, who determines that? What are they going by? Um, you know, wh- who – it probably won't matter because there won't be full stands. Uh, there won't be fans in the stands and the stadium won't be full, but who gets home, who gets away and, and why that's the case uh, when you figure out these opponents. So there's still a lot to figure out, but Will, that's the first thing I said. That, hey, look, if you're giving strength to schedule, because look, LSU is not the same LSU as last year. Uh, I mean, and look, every team is different, but I mean, are, you, are you giving LSU the easier or, or harder schedule or yeah harder schedule because they were supposedly the number one team in the conference because they won the national championship last year but well, that's not the same team so, so you know I, I find something there needs to be some transparency when the sec announces this hopefully and, and i texted peter burns of the sec network when, when this thing dropped i said hey look you have got to do some kind of like two hour program of where you just released the schedule don't make the don't make us wait. Go ahead and give that to us at the beginning of the show. But then the next two hours, you can break down, you know, what the what the schedules mean. But there needs to be some kind of special programming from the SEC Network and giving us this schedule. But with that, there needs to be okay. Here's how we came up with it, and, and this this is how we got to that point. Yeah. So I volunteered on Twitter for for Peter to come on and talk on, on that show, but I haven't heard back yet. So we'll have to <laughs> we'll, we'll have to get a campaign going. But no, I mean. I, I, I'm surprised they haven't done this similar to like the NBA lottery. Yeah. <laughs> you figure you'd have it like be a selection show. And I mean, the SEC is great at making money off of everything. You figure this would be an opportunity for them to do that. Um, I, I think the biggest thing is, is it, transparency matters in some capacity, but really what's going to matter is whether the athletic directors are happy with it. Right. So if, if the Georgia athletic director comes out and complains then everybody's going to know that there was some horse trading going on. And if uh, you know, if everybody's pretty quiet and they all go out and say, Hey, this is the hand we were dealt and we're, we're, we're excited about the schedule. Then, you know, that there was a little bit of give and take. I mean, I think the biggest thing is, is when you start thinking about the schedule is, is, 
you know, the idea that Georgia and Florida probably aren't going to be playing in Jacksonville, that maybe is one of the areas where the negotiation really starts to take hold because are you going to play in a fanless stadium in Athens this year and then be back in Jacksonville next year? Or do you go to Gainesville next year? How does that work? Um, those sorts of things where there's special rivalries, special things that are, that are going on are probably the things that are taking a little bit more time. Um, I, Again, if you're not just going to do a lottery, doing the next two in the rotation makes the most sense. Obviously, that's going to impact yeah. some people more than others. But you know, the reality is, is that you know it was always going to impact some people more than others, just because it's two more SEC games, and if it's replacing two non-conference cupcakes, then it's a big deal. If it's replacing, you know, Alabama was playing USC, right? So, mm-hmm. so if if Alabama ends up getting Kentucky, obviously their schedule is easier than it would have been had they had to go all the way out to California and play Southern Cal. So, I think there's a little bit of. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, when you play in the SEC, that you're going to have to beat a tough schedule. And all this does is sort of expand that. So I do think that probably one of the things we need to think about is that this is not going to be a one loss and you're out type of type of endeavor, right? There are going to be times where teams get caught, you know, a week after a big win or, you know, maybe one team's coming off a bye and another one isn't where all of a sudden you get caught and you lose. And it wouldn't surprise me if you had a team that's eight and two or a team that's even seven and three that ends up winning, um, you know, ends up being number one or number two in the SEC and then ends up going to Atlanta. And then that's the other thing is, are they going to keep the divisions or are they going to, are they going to have one big conference where they just take the top two? They, based said, on, they said divisions, but I even know, like, do they, do they redesign the divisions for one year maybe? Sure. I mean, so, so who knows, right? I mean, we're speculating and tomorrow they'll, they'll announce it and, and, and it'll all be out there. But like you said, the SEC tends to do things bigger. They have their own network. We're all starved for sports content. And, uh, and so anything they can do to, to, to make this more like a selection show, I'm in favor of. Yeah. And I threw the question out there on Facebook uh, last or Twitter last week of uh, asking the fans who they wanted the two conference opponents to be. Uh, and look, and, and I'll even uh, admit, and we'll kind of said it as well, you know, just, just going by the next two is probably the most non-biased way of doing it. Sorry, it works out, you know, Florida and Alabama. Uh, but I think that, you know, that's where a lot of the fan angst come from. It wasn't that Florida had to play maybe or possibly had to play Alabama and Texas A&M. It's just that Georgia drew Arkansas and Mississippi State at the same time. So it was, you know, it, it wasn't, hey, look, we're, we'd be excited to have to play Alabama and Texas A&M. You know, you look for these big games, and that's where, you know, I, every year I say it, I don't care for the cupcake games. I'm, I'm more of a – I want to go nine, ten conference games anyway just because I like seeing good football being played. Um, so that, that's where a lot of it come from. It's just you wanted a little bit of equality – well, first of all, the schedule's never equal. You know, as we said, Florida had a little bit of an easier path. As, that's what we saw this year uh, compared to Georgia, who had to play Alabama and uh, Auburn this year. Uh, so, you know, but you know, asking the fans out there, Alabama and A&M were still popular since that was kind of thrown out there. Uh, Auburn, again, just because, you know, old-time rivalry, Florida doesn't play Auburn much anymore. It would be nice to maybe play them again. Um, another one, of course, Will, the, the, one of the more popular ones out there is Arkansas because you would get Kyle Trask versus Felipe Franks uh, uh, more than likely if, if you had that. Now, and, and I brought this up, you know, does travel distance play a part in how they do this schedule? You know, does it make sense for Arkansas uh, and Florida to travel to – one of each other's stadiums, you know, pretty far distance there. Uh, but, you know, LSU is already traveling to Florida, all that kind of stuff. So it, it, it's probably a small factor. You got to factor in Missouri and all that too. But for storyline purposes, Will, I mean, 
you know, Florida, Mississippi State, of course, just played a couple years ago in Dan Mullen's first year uh, as Florida head coach. You could get that game again with Mike Leach uh, leading the Bulldogs. Uh, Felipe Franks in Arkansas, of course, is would be one of the better storylines in college football the week that they played. Uh, but yeah, you know, if it's Bama A and M, it's just Bama A and M, uh, and it's just the way it plays out. I don't think it will play that way. I think Florida will get one of those two teams, and then probably somebody like a uh, Mississippi State or an Arkansas. Uh, and look, that kind of replaces the difficulty of uh, FSU right there. You know, uh, that if you want to look at maybe how the schedule would compare to before uh, you maybe get a, a school that's kind of on par with what FSU would have been. Yeah. I mean, I think at the end of the day, the, the schedule was always going to be more equal or more fair. If you go to 10 teams, just because you're playing 10 teams out of a 14 team league instead of eight teams out of a 14 team league. Right. And what that's really done is it's brought Florida and Georgia's schedule much more closer in alignment in terms of the difficulty, just because of that very nature. Right. So whether it ends up being, Alabama and Arkansas, whether it ends up being Alabama A&M, whether it ends up being Auburn and, and Mississippi State. You know, I don't know that it really matters. It, what really matters is, is that we always talk about the SEC schedule being a gauntlet. That's one of the reasons why they don't want to go to nine games. Well, now they're going to 10. So we're going to see the attrition and the depth, I think, is going to start to play a role. More so than a 12-game schedule where, you know, middle of the second quarter, it's already, you know, 24 to nothing and, you, and you've got reserves coming in and rotating in it's, and you don't really have to go full bore the entire game. Um, you know, this is something where you're going to have to be fully, fully locked in every, every week when you go out there. And, you know, even in the SEC with some of the teams that aren't as good, you know, they're not pushovers like like playing Eastern Washington or North Texas or teams like that, right? And, yeah. and so that's not going to be there. So I think depth is going to be more important. And that's maybe one of the concerns that you'd have with Florida when you look at some of its contemporaries, you know, Georgia, Alabama, LSU. LSU maybe not so much this year, but but just the depth that they have in the team and, and can they afford to lose a guy or two at, at key positions because it's going to be a much more physical time. And then when you combine that with the fact that all, that a lot of these guys haven't been able to spend as much time in the weight room, are they really going to be ready with a six-week camp, getting ready for the season, all that sort of stuff? Those are the things where I think we start start to maybe get a little bit of angst. But you know, I, I am not going to complain about the schedule. It's, it is what it is, right? We're in the middle of a pandemic. Yep. They're doing the best they can. At the end of the day, you have to add two games. If you add two games that are considered not as difficult, then all you'll hear is complaining about complaining about it from Georgia. Give me Alabama. Give me A&M. Let's run the table, and then we don't have to worry about it. And, and I, hey, heck, I threw that out there. You know, every, Everybody likes to say this year that, oh, whoever wins the national championship team or this year will have an asterisk by their name. Maybe so. But you could have an asterisk by your name because you just played a heck of a schedule. I mean, say you do start this and teams don't get, you know, decimated by COVID and you play a 10 game SEC schedule. You play a 10 game SEC schedule and then go on to win a national championship. That's that's a feat. So if you want to put an asterisk beside Florida or Georgia or Alabama or whoever wins it just because, oh, they won it in a COVID year. Well, you know what? In, in a way that could speak more than just to any other regular season because, like, as you said, Will, and everything you just laid out, playing 10 SEC teams is not going to be easy. No, and I mean, that, that'll actually be the really interesting thing, right? Is let's say you've got a 7-3 and three team that goes to the SEC title game and wins it. <laughs> yeah. And now an 8-3 and three team from the SEC is playing, you know, Clemson because Clemson hasn't played anybody. And, you know, you're playing – I mean, what does that look like? I think if nothing else, it sort of finally proves the point. <laughs> really puts the nail – really puts the, the dagger in the coffin there for uh, – 
for conference supremacy if an eight and three SEC team comes in and beats an undefeated Clemson or or an undefeated Notre Dame or you know assume if the Pac-12 decides to play and they participate you know USC or somebody like that I, yes then there's going to be the opportunity to prove something that you couldn't prove before and more than anything like sports is about seeing things you haven't seen before and it's about you know sort of those special type of um, circumstances and obviously nobody wants the pandemic, but in the pandemic, you're doing the best that you can. You're you're in the strongest conference in the country by far, you know, by all by all the different metrics. And you just got two more games. The only thing there is is the wear and tear on your body. And that, I mean, that's one of the reasons why they're not pushing things off until spring. I think they would push things off until spring if they thought they were going to if they thought they were able to do it. But just from the standpoint of wear and tear, they're not going to be able to do it. And so this is the compromise. And, and I don't think that I think we'll put an asterisk by it because we will all remember it. Mm-hmm. But I don't think 20 years from now, anybody's going to say that was an illegitimate championship. I think what they're going to say is that that was a weird season, but, yeah. you know, look at that gauntlet. And I think maybe we'll even learn something, right? I mean, if you think about when the XFL started, everybody kind of thought it was a joke. You know, the first XFL, everybody thought it was a joke, but, you know, we got innovations from that particular league that have carried and sustained its way through both professional and college football. So the biggest one is the the floating camera behind the line of scrimmage, right? I mean, that's something that is now just an indelible mark of every football broadcast. And it comes because the XFL was trying it out. So I think there'll probably be some things that they try out that they go, Ooh, we don't want to do that, mm-hmm. but I think there are going to be some things that they see. I mean, you know, if, if the sec network wants to maximize dollars 10 conference games probably beats eight conference games and a couple of cupcakes. And the question is going to be, is that going to be a model moving forward? Well, we're going to get to see what it looks like. And so, you know, this is a unique year, a special year, but I don't think it diminishes what the players have accomplished. And, you know, you mentioned if they run the table without having a COVID outbreak, but what if a team does have a COVID outbreak and still manages to run the table, then they've dealt with a kind of adversity no one's had to deal with before. So in that case, again, I think you look back and say, you know, not only was it a special season, but it was something where they had to overcome something that other people have never had to do. Uh, and something else they got to overcome, Will, is uh, the Southeastern Conference announcing on Tuesday adjusted dates for preseason football activities for the SEC schools with the first allowable practice now scheduled for August 17th. Uh, so uh, we were supposed to, you know, fall camp uh, was supposed to start this coming up week. Uh, that's now no longer going to happen. The new SEC calendar provides student athletes with more days off than required by the NCAA and fewer practices than permitted by uh, current NCAA rules. This is all, uh, you know, for helping uh, protect the players there. So new pre- the new preseason calendar was developed based on recommendations of the SEC's Return to Activity and Medical Guidance Task Force. Last week, the SEC announced its intentions to begin the 2020 season on September 26th. As it continues to monitor developments around COVID-19, the original start date of September 5th would have allowed for preseason football practice to begin on August 7th. Uh, and so we thought that was still going to be the case until the SEC uh, announced that. So uh, in the revised SEC preseason football calendar from August 7th through the 16th, schools are permitted to conduct up to 14 hours per week of strength and conditioning, meetings and walkthroughs uh, beginning August 17th, and until the opening game, schools are allowed 25 practices with a limited of 20 hours per week of practice time. A five-day acclimation period is required with two days in helmets only, two days in shells, and the fifth day in full pads. Schools would be required to provide student athletes a minimum of two days off each week until the week 
before the first game of the season. So, well, of course, this comes uh, and bears the question: How does this help or hurt Florida? Has you know help or hurt the SEC? Other schools out there? Well, I think you know before we heard this, we just assumed that all these teams were going to be able to practice starting this week, and that would help make up for a lot of time they missed in the spring. Uh, Some you have uh, an extra ten days here to, to. have some things figured out. So teams like LSU who's replacing a lot and Georgia who's replacing a lot and, and, you know, potential quarterback battle going on there now. Uh, so, you know, now you know, the calendar kind of gets smushed again and you have to come up with another plan, another adjustment. Uh, but in, they're used to that kind of by now, uh, but they were getting ready to hit the field, getting ready to hit fall camp. And now this comes up and they probably had some kind of inclination that this was going to happen. You know, these things just don't happen on a whim. Uh, but, you know, uh, it does bear the question, you know, how does this help or hurt Florida and, and some of the other SEC schools out there? Yeah, I mean, I, I think most of the time we've thought that that the extra time off or the extra time away from the field has probably aided Florida just because they're bringing back an awful lot of experience. But at some point, you know, I'm not sure that it necessarily matters, right? Yeah. I mean, when when everything gets gets shifted and shifted and shifted, is is it really – is anything really getting to the point where it's an advantage to anyone? I think it's a question of handling adversity. And maybe you'd say a team that with a bunch of upperclassmen is going to be able to handle adversity a little bit better. At the same time, does this give guys who are relatively new early enrollees, guys like that, time to learn the offense in ways that they normally wouldn't have the ability to do, right? That the 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 installs would be happening this week. The season obviously would be starting a month from now. And it would be you wouldn't have had time to do all the film study that you're now going to have an opportunity to do. I think the biggest thing is I'm just glad it feels like the the Southeastern Conference is looking out for its players, at least from a health and safety perspective. Um, My biggest concern with all of this, I mean, COVID is obviously one of the concerns, but I do think that they're probably going to get the best health care that they possibly can get while they're on campus. And so I, I you know, obviously you don't want anybody to get the, get the virus, but if they do, they're going to have great health care if they, if they do. But one of the big concerns with well, the secondary concern is just, you know, injuries like the soft tissue injuries, mm-hmm. the ACLs, the Achilles, um, and then hamstrings and things like that. I, I think that's probably the thing that, you know, the two days a week in shells and then only one day a week in pads, those things start to start to um, at least allow the players to start to acclimate maybe a little bit better. But, you know, we'll see week one. I mean, you know, one of the things that I think we'll need to be on the lookout for is is some of those soft tissue injuries in week one and see whether the layoff has had an impact. I mean, we've seen it in the NBA a little bit. You know, Jonathan mm-hmm. Isaac tore his ACL. There was somebody else, I can't remember who it was, got injured today and, and is going to be out for a little while. So, um, you know, those sorts of injuries have happened as people have had layoffs. The question is, is it the layoff or is it just sort of bad luck? I don't know that we'll necessarily know that, but that is one of the things I think that they're trying to mitigate by having some by pushing back practice and having some of the time limitations. Well, well, you know, hopefully all this uh, we'll have a schedule announcement soon uh, and the season, and uh, all this can go hand in hand with uh, with the announcement from the SEC on fall camp and, and recent happenings on social media. Um, so. You know, this could be a, a crazy, unpredictable type of season. And, and look, it, it could look much different than, the, you know, than we think. If, if social media interaction is any indication here, of course, you go back a couple of days, Kadarius Tony and Jacob Copeland turned some heads a couple of days ago on Twitter when, you know, Tony tweeted, uh, opting out just might be the better decision. And then uh, fellow wide receiver Jacob Copeland responded, 
quote, thinking it over, you honestly might be right. And then he later tweeted, quote, health over football. So, uh, you know, Brett McMurphy, uh, at today, uh, the NCAA comes out and says, you know, and he tweeted this, Brett McMurphy, the NCAA says all student athletes must be allowed to opt out of participation, participation due to concerns about contracting COVID-19. If so, scholarship commitment must be honored by university. Uh, SEC already had that uh, in play. But he also says also schools may not require student athletes to waive their legal rights regarding COVID-19. And this is also on the heels of some Pac-12 players coming together and and, and listing demands related to health and safety, uh, monetary income, uh, racial injustice out there. Some Big Ten players also came out with a similar list of demands today on Wednesday after uh, the Big Ten announced their schedule plan. So uh, and Gators defensive lineman Zach Carter uh, got into it with some fans when when he reposted in support of the Pac-12 over the weekend. In uh, a, a very small part of the the fan base, took it too far with with, with what was said towards Carter. And hey, look, it, it's okay to to disagree. Uh, don't you know? You don't have to verbally attack the players uh, out there that you know you supposedly cheer for. <laughs> they're at the same time uh, in, in the season. And you look, that was part of Carter's argument there. Uh, you know, they're, they're part of a, a labor workforce that they see uh, in their eyes uh, for these college football players. You know, they want to be seen as more than just a labor of college football. And, and they want to, they want to say in how everything is being handled. So, you know, his back and forth will wasn't so much opting out for the season, but, you know, but, but the, the inequality he sees uh, as a player. So we'll just, uh, um, uh, a lot going on. We, we started this episode here, you know, talking about on the field and, and uh, schedules and, and all that. But, you know, just on the other side of this, are, are players worried about their own their, their safety with these schedules getting announced? Yeah, I mean, you know, so I guess there, there's a bunch of different issues you brought up there. The first one is guys opting out. If, if they want to opt out because of COVID, they should do that. Yep. And I'm glad that the NCAA kind of late to the party came in and said, we're going to hold everybody to the same standards. But obviously the SEC, I think, has been pretty consistent in terms of making sure that the players who who decide to opt out for health and safety reasons are able to do that and able to maintain their scholarship. The thing that they have to weigh, though, is that there's dollars on the back end, right? I mean, if you're a 21-year-old guy who is not draftable next year or is probably like an undrafted free agent, and this was an opportunity to maybe get into the you know, the second, third, fourth round, well, you, you're costing yourself millions of dollars by not playing. So there are probably going to be some guys who feel compelled to come in and play, and I think that's maybe one of the things that uh, – that is weighing on everybody's mind pretty heavily, right? Is is a guy like Kadarius Tony? I don't think he probably gets drafted next year if he sits out this year, and then you know, maybe if he performs really well at the combine, he would he would get drafted. But I don't think based on his tape, you would look at that and and say, yeah, that's somebody who's going to go in the top four or five rounds. He's probably an undrafted free agent, um, you know, going in. So him sitting out is a decision where he'd be coming back to Florida next year to play after sitting out for a year. And then you're taking a year off of your career in the NFL, right? There's only so many, only so many bullets in in the holster when you're, when you're a player and, you know, most NFL careers are like three years. And a lot of that's because bodies start to break down. And so sacrificing that year, especially in football becomes, becomes pr- pretty problematic. The, the other side is is the pay for play, and that one's a little bit more difficult because one of the things is, is when you really think at it, I'm surprised the NCAA hasn't done this yet, which is basically that you know the people restricting these guys from getting paid are not necessarily the NCAA, it's the NFL. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, the NFL says you got to go play somewhere for three years before you or you got to be out of high school for three years before you come and play in our league, which means they don't have a whole lot of options. The only option is the NCAA. Now, obviously, the NCAA makes a lot of money. And some of the name, image, and likeness stuff, I think, has always been kind of ridiculous that these guys can't profit off their own, off their own name and their own talents. But that's going to be rectified next year. You know, the idea that you're going to be able to get a 50-50 revenue split or even really <laughs> any additional payment, it's just yeah. not going to happen. And it's not going to happen for a lot of different reasons. The biggest one is, is that Title IX prevents it from happening based mm-hmm. on the way the money exists. So, um, you know, but there's some things on the on that Pac-12 list that probably ought to be addressed, particularly when it comes to health and safety. Um, I suspect that universities are really also trying to straddle a line because, Let's be honest, with no fans in the stands, <laughs> their 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 budgets are being strained. And then with um, with uncertainty in terms of what's gonna happen in the spring or what's gonna happen next year, everybody's sort of looking out for what's gonna happen with the budgets. And then uh, and then there are also increased costs associated with doing all of the testing and all the different things that are involved, as well as the legal things. And this is one of the things where it gets into something I don't know very much about, but players aren't considered employees like they are in in the NFL. So the NFL and the NBA, they've collectively bargained what the COVID testing looks like. I don't know what the privacy concerns are for somebody who's not an employee, for somebody who's classified as a student athlete, but I imagine that brings some complications into things as well. So somebody who's a lawyer can probably speak up and give us some information on that on Twitter. But um, the reality is, is that there there are legal entanglements here that, that the NCAA probably has to work through and the SEC has to work through. And then you complicate that by – the the fact that the NCAA is really pretty toothless and the conferences have had to go this alone, which means each conference has different different restrictions. Each conference has different plans. Each conference has diff, diff, different testing protocols, which is one of the reasons why they're playing conference only schedules, right, is they want to be able to control that. Um, so it, it's just a weird time. I, I think um, I don't begrudge any player wanting to make more money. At the same time, there's a reality that I don't think that the NCAA is going to be able to acquiesce to that sort of thing. Um, they begrudgingly acquiesced to the name, image, and likeness, and that was just because they, they knew they were going to lose in court. I don't think they lose in court if, if somebody says – if somebody comes and tries to take an antitrust or something, an yeah. antitrust case against the NCAA, the antitrust case is with the NFL. So I think the players have probably gotten about all they're going to get out of the NCAA in terms of their ability to, to advertise using their own names and images. And, and I suspect that that's kind of where we're going to settle. But again, I, if the players don't feel safe, I'm glad they're giving them the opportunity to sit out. And I hope the SEC does a good job for even those guys who are sort of on the fence but feel like they need to play because of their future, that, that they'll do a good job of making sure that, that as best as can be done, the COVID protocols in place can keep everybody as safe as can be. But obviously we've seen with, with major league baseball recently, that that's not a sure thing. You, you do the best you can and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. I think, you know, the name image and likeness would go a long way for, for these players and instead of having to go straight to the conferences and, and all that and demanding money that uh, you get that name image and likeness and, and they can make money off their name. I think that goes a long way uh, and players being able to, to, to help support themselves. Uh, I think a little more in the stipend that, you know, could probably be used as well. Um, you know, they do some, uh, provide a lot of money uh, for these universities in the end. Uh, but as Will said, it's difficult, and especially right now in the, in the climate we're in, these athletic departments are losing money uh, right now with, not game, with games not being played. So uh, demands for money right now 
from universities are probably uh, not 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 the best look when they're not really making all that money right now either. So and if these guys were going to push for something, it should be capping the incomes of the coaches and the athletic directors and the staff, right? Yep. Like it, it, the coaches should have to have the same sort of. I mean, they need to get paid, obviously, but, you know, Debo Swinney making $9.3 million while his players are getting a stipend. You know, I think if you said, if you put a cap on what guys could make and then told me that, hey, we need this money to support women's sports in Title IX, I'd say, okay, I can buy that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but the allocation of the resources to the facilities and the allocation of the resources to the coaches, I think is what irks people the most as you look at it and see, you know, ostensibly the 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 white coach and then all of the African-American players. And, and it feels like people are being taken advantage of. Um, at the same time, again, I, you know, I mentioned earlier the, the article – Jordan Doman wrote on my on my website about you know what the basketball players got from the women's side, and I'm sure the football players had an even more luxurious life. But there are an awful lot of benefits to being a player at UF as well, and and at a major college football program. So the, these guys are not. Um, there's a significant amount of money spent on the people there. Now you could argue that they don't have the agency to spend that money. I think that's a different argument, but. Um, you know, at the end of the day, like you said, if the athletic programs are struggling from a financial standpoint and they need to make cuts, they're obviously probably going to, I mean, it's going to be the men's non-revenue sports that end up getting cut. Yep. Um, I think we already saw that. I think Stanford mm-hmm. cut some stuff on the, on the men's side. I think we're going to see more and more of that as things go on. And really the, the pushing through this season is part of trying to mitigate that as best they can. And Will, I'm kind of glad you said that. I am more on the player side with, with some of this stuff and kind of defending about being able to make some money off their name. But I also would like to hear the side of it, of them being, like you say, grateful for what they get. You don't hear that side too often except for kind of down the road, maybe 5, 10, 15 years down the road of what the degree did for them and, and what the exposure of playing for you know big-time universities did for them. After the fact, yeah, and, you know, maybe it, it may be, you know, that's part of it as a college kid, you know, you, it's a uh, instant gratification kind of of what you want. And like I said, I don't blame them for fighting what they believe in, especially on the health side of things. So that that's not in question. They should be able to do that all day long. Uh, you know, the monetary value and, and the Pac-12 and look, they probably started big, you know, 50 percent. They knew that probably right away. <laughs> that was going to be way too big. And maybe you work your way down. Uh, but uh yeah, that's not – and as far as universities and, and the money go and, and coaches' salaries, and some a lot of that is UAA-driven, you know, athletic associations that are kind of just outside of the university as far as funds and, and money raised and all that stuff goes. And a lot of that goes back into the university. Uh, you know, except Florida, the UAA will put money back into the university and, and help the other students on campus and help the, the lower-income sports and, and all that. So, you know, it is, it is a question of how do you disperse it with the sports that don't make money uh, if you're going to start paying players, how does it get dispersed? Uh, and Title IX uh, out there as well. There's just a lot of questions, and I know they want something now. This will have to. This will take forever to get figured out with all the layers that are attached to it. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, it, what you said about about players and, and gratitude, I, I think is. Um, you know, I think back to me at 18, yeah. 19, 20 years old. In fact, I had an issue at work. Um, you know early last year and made me call an old boss and apologize to him because I was like, wow, I was a pain in the butt back then. You sort of realize that stuff as you get older. And, um, you know, the other thing is about four or five years ago, Northwestern tried to unionize and the Mm -hmm. NCAA was, was integral to preventing that from happening. And, you know, 
Northwestern was trying, the players at Northwestern were trying to go through it using the proper channels. And they were relatively nice in terms of what they were asking for. And they got shut down. And I think now the players see an opportunity to, to push in because of a lot of different things, right? I mean, the, the weakness of the financial position of many of these universities um, obviously means that the money is being counted in a way that maybe it wasn't before. At the same time, the reliance of the universities on the football revenue makes them maybe be in a position where these players have more leverage. They sense they have more leverage. And you know, in times past, they haven't necessarily had that kind of leverage and haven't been able to push things through. Now they see they have a little bit of leverage. It's, it's, time, to, it's time to push through. At the end of the day, though, this is going to be a lot like you know, some of the people who sacrificed in the past for, for, for progress, those people usually don't see the benefits. The people who see the benefits are the people who come after them, who get to, uh, who get to enjoy the spoils. It's the people who, who speak up, who typically don't end up getting it. And that's kind of what you're alluding to. It's going to take some years to figure this out. Um, you're not going to be able to switch. You're not just gonna be able to flip a switch and really universities are gonna have to make a choice because if they're taking federal dollars, they have to have matching scholarship numbers for the most part on the women's and the men's side. And so they're going to have to make difficult choices about what they do want to fund and what they don't want to fund. If one of the things they choose to fund is sharing revenue with the players. And then look, I definitely won't blame the player for opting out in, in the name of health. You know, there's still, there's still so much we don't know uh, about COVID, especially long-term. Uh, and we're not going to know that <laughs> until, you know, months and years down the road here. And, and I don't like the saying, well, they're 18 to 22 year old kids. They, they won't die. Is it really just about death? I mean, is that is that really it? I mean, there's reports of of heart and lung damage from COVID out there. And are you really going to keep 18 to 22 year old kids from hanging out and seeing friends and family, you know, four or five months and they don't get paid? <laughs> Good luck with that. So, uh, you know, and what about coaching staffs, referees, support staff, everybody who, who it takes to put a game on? Uh, you're putting their health at risk at the same time. It's not just the 18 to 22 year old players. So. It, you know, it, it's not just people who fall into that young age range. So, you know, all right, it, there's no easy answers here. I don't blame players for looking out for themselves here and their, and their families. Now, now you hope if they opt out, they're doing it for the right reasons. They're getting the right info uh, and, and they're taking care of themselves. I mean, they do and that they can also do the things they need to do to get ready for next season if they decide to opt out. But you know, if they don't want to play, support that decision. And uh, that's about the that's about my soapbox moment right there, Will. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I think you, you want to support the guys no matter what they decide to do. Um, you know, and, and I think everybody has a different risk tolerance, right? One of the things that's been difficult in terms of getting back to society is that you've got people who have very, very low risk tolerances in terms of their exposure. And many of them for good reason, right? I mean, if you live with your grandma, then you've got a very different risk tolerance than if you're 24 years old and you live by yourself. Um, but going back to society means meeting in the middle somewhere. And what we're really arguing about is where are we meeting in the middle of that risk profile? Are we meeting more towards the staying indoors? Or are we meeting more in the staying outdoors? And, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, um, you know, we're seeing that right now play out live with the NBA and, and Major League Baseball, right? I mean, Major League Baseball decided that in order to play, they had to be in outdoor stadiums and that's required them being, with, with travel and that's, and they've had some outbreaks and then you look at the NBA, they've decided to sit in a bubble and that's been the way they've been able to do it. So I, I think there, there, like you said, there is no right answer. Um, 
but at the same time, and really it sucks, right? But at some point we have to reintegrate into society. People are going to do that at their own pace and what they're comfortable with. And I think we have to support everybody as they do that while also recognizing that the people who do want to reintegrate into society or need to be allowed to do that as well. I will. And kind of, you know, to kind of introduce this segment here, going back to you know Kadarius Tony and, and Jacob Copeland, maybe talking talking about opting out is uh, uh, the way to go here. Man, how different would this Gator uh, team look without those two guys? Uh, we talked about uh, the wide receiver position, and while Florida lost so much to the NFL draft last season, they also bring a lot back. But also, that was due to Kadarius Tony and Jacob Copeland having some experience and and bringing what they have back. You lose those two guys, and the wide receiver core looks a whole lot different, and you're having to rely on redshirt freshman Jamarcus Weston and, and Trent Whittemore a bit more, a true freshman Xavier Henderson and Jaquavion Frazier's who would have to come in and have to be impacts right away uh, in some form or fashion if, you know, Kadarius Tony and Jacob Copeland, if you can take their social media interactions serious here uh, and they're seriously thinking about it, um, you know, you'd ha- you, you got to look at what this wide receiver core would look like. Yeah, well, not only do you have those wide receivers coming back and, um, you know, not only do you end up with the lack of depth there, but you also end up with no preparation time, right? I mean, you've got your your limited practice that we talked about earlier, and then game one, you're hitting the, you're hitting the ground running, right? I mean, all of a sudden, you're playing at Tennessee, or you're playing, you know, maybe at Alabama, depending upon what happens with the state, with the, uh, with the schedule. And, you know, so a guy like Jaquavion Frazier is, is going out there for his first game, you know, first real action where he's being relied on and he's going to be relied on (laughs) heavily in an SEC game. So yeah, it's going to throw people for a loop. And then the other thing is, is that, you know, there's a, there's a ripple effect. So when Tony and Copeland go out, then that means you got to pull guys up from special teams who would normally be major contributors on special teams. And now they're major contributors on the offense, which means you got to find more contributors on special teams. And, and and so that sort of ripple effect in the depth, you know, we talked about that a little bit earlier too, that the depth becomes really important because you're going to have to get more from, from a different subset of people. So, yeah, I mean, if, if it, I mean, here's the reality, right? Is if either of those guys, either one of those guys had gone down with an injury, we would have looked at that said, we would have looked at that and said, eh, that's really a place where Florida probably can't afford an injury. Um, if both of them decide to opt out, then yeah, obviously it impacts things significantly, just not only from having to get the new guys acclimated, but also getting Kyle Trask acclimated to the new guys, as opposed to the people he's been preparing to play with now for you know 12 months. Yep, yep, yep. So definitely something to look forward to and look out for, Will, is uh, players opting out and uh, we'll get into it later, but you know, even some guys who could opt out just for NFL draft reasons, uh, and probably couldn't blame them in that regard either. So, um, well, before we move on, um, Clippers, Clippers, and Nuggets. Uh, who cares? <laughs> I ain't talking about the NBA. I'm talking about Manscape, Will, and uh, you're here to make sure your Nuggets get taken care of in that matchup. <laughs> Manscaped's here to provide you the best tools for your grooming experience. You can never go wrong with the Lawnmower 3.0, the best hygiene tool for the modern man. Because of their ceramic blade and skin-safe technology, your snags will be reduced. Manscaped just released their Shears 2.0 nail kit, which is a perfect add on their Lawnmower 3.0 trimmer. The Perfect Package 3.0 comes with a new and improved Lawnmower waterproof cordless body trimmer, performance performance boxer briefs, and a travel bag for you to use when we're all done with this quarantine, the Perfect Package 3.0 also comes with the Crop Preserver and Crop Reviver. The Crop Preserver is the anti-chafing ball deodorant, and the Crop Reviver is made with soothing aloe in which rich 
hazel extracts that will give your man area a boost. Get 20% off your order plus free shipping with code Gators at manscaped.com. That's 20% off your entire order plus free shipping with code Gators at manscaped.com. I wasn't talking NBA, Will. was not talking NBA. <laughs> you, you got me, Dave. I didn't know where you were going. I should have seen it from a mile away, but it's been a long day. Uh, anytime the episode starts with the Manscaped read, you know you, you know it's coming some, some, somewhere along the way. <laughs> well, it, it's a good product. You had it set my way. I've been very impressed. So, um, you know, everybody should go out there and give it a, give it a look. Give that, give that summer body a good look, Will. Well, they got to be careful, man. If if people don't support you, you're gonna have to do like a live uh, a live <laughs> demo or something. So if you don't want to see that, make sure you go out and check out their website. Do not want to see that. You do not want to see that. My uh, farmer's tan might blind you. Might blind you. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you spent the whole week in your backyard going down the slide, man. You, that should be taken care of now. I did, but the uh, the wife is a skin cancer nurse, so uh, she takes very care, good, very good care with the uh, sunblock and making sure. Uh, a shirt is worn most of the time. So the, the farmer's tan is a, is alive and well. Yikes. All right. Next segment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, next segment, of course, recruiting will uh, always popular segment here. Some good, some bad, uh, maybe coming up here for the Gators. Uh, first, let's go back uh, a, a little bit and we'll dive into uh, a, a player. We go from players that we thought we may see this season uh, and, and that may end up not playing. If you can take Kadarius Tony and Jacob Copeland's Twitter conversations uh, serious here. Um and we now go to a player that unexpectedly will be a Gator and on campus in a couple of weeks, according to him, Will. And one of Florida's top commits for the 2021 class is cornerback Kamar Wilcoxon. He says he will reclassify and arrive on campus in the next couple of weeks. You don't see this too often. But uh, with COVID out there and the question of if high school football will even be played this fall, Wilcoxon sees more value in going, in going on ahead and getting started with his college career, Will. Uh, as he said in numerous interviews, he might as well go ahead and get acclimated to the to the college game, especially if there's no high school football. Go ahead and get on campus and get the playbook. Learn from Marco Wilson. Learn from Kyrie Elam, and uh, get around these coaches and and, and and get going. So, you know, if a season is played, you know, play in four games this season uh, and still get redshirted, or maybe he can prove himself and, and be on the field a bit more. You know, in that outside cornerback role as a, as a reserve there. So, you know, but get the weight room, uh, get that taken care of uh, instead of waiting around to, to see if high school football season will be played. So, Will, it's a, a welcome in to a roller coaster of a recruiting from Kamar Wilcoxon, uh, a player who committed to Florida twice before committing to Tennessee. Uh, that didn't last too long before he recommitted to Florida. So, after all that, Will uh, ends up coming in a year early. So, uh, you know, that's a, a really good example of the wild and wacky world of recruiting. Yeah, so this is his final answer. He uh, he, just, he decided to come into Florida early. It's an interesting it's an interesting approach. I mean, I understand why he would want to come in early because of all the things you said, right? Getting in the weight room, understanding the program, learning from the guys who are already there, those sorts of things. But he is walking into some pretty stiff competition. I mean, Jahari Rogers, mm-hmm. um, you know, and Ethan Pouncey are both top two hundred guys. So Jahari Rogers was ranked eighty seventh last year. Um, you know, coming in. So it's not as though he's going to be competing. It's not like Florida was in need of a cornerback when you think about what they, or, I mean, but, you know, to be honest, Florida could use help at safety, right? And, and Will Cox and sort of profiles there. So, as a the reality is is I'm not sure that you can ever have enough defensive backs, particularly when you think about um, some of the guys that, 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 
Florida Florida lost. I mean, you know, they're going to have to replace C.J. Henderson. They had some issues at safety last year, and so bringing in more competition is always good. But like you said, um, this will be one of the interesting things because, you know, you got the 10 SEC games, and you're going to get to play in four SEC games yeah. if you're if you're redshirting. And that means you're getting real – real playing time right like you're not you're not going in when it's 45 to nothing i mean maybe you are i mean maybe that's when they wait until you play you know somebody like arkansas or something like that and you're up big but um, uh, tennessee yeah so but you know the georgia but the reality is is you know you're gonna be you're gonna be out there with guys who are at least equivalent to you in talent every time you go out there so it, i think it'll be more of a learning experience for these guys and again i i go back to what i said earlier about if you're going to have to manage playing a sport through the pandemic, the healthcare at the University of Florida is going to be better than anything you get through a high school. And the testing at the University of Florida is going to be better than anything that you would get at a high school. And that's not a shot at a high school. It's just the reality of the of the fact that Florida has more resources and has more control over over what's going on within its particular within its particular sphere. And so yeah, I mean if if you're concerned at all about the pandemic, I think the place you'd want to be is college if you were deciding between high school and college. So beyond maybe just getting rid of the uncertainty and getting in and getting some extra reps and sort of getting started early, I do think this is you know, this is driven also by some of the uncertainty associated with high school and and Will Coxon obviously a welcome addition. Absolutely, absolutely. So welcome news there. And and uh kind of been on the back burner for a couple of weeks. It's it's been out there uh, a little bit and, and it, it kind of uh, comes to comes to fruition. You know, it's still gotta happen, but uh everybody says uh or he says uh, he'll be on campus in a couple of weeks. So let's go back to a week ago. Will I was on vacation last week, so I didn't spend too much time on the commitment of uh Desmond Watson, the six six three hundred and fifty pound defensive tackle from Sefner. Florida Andrew Ivins for 24-7 Sports offers an analysis and a comparison to former Alabama defensive lineman Terrence Cody. So, uh, quote, he says, a large, wide hip body that's well over 350 pounds, surprisingly light on his feet given build and composition, oftentimes one of the first to pounce off the snap and initiate contact. Quick hands and swim move allow him to get past blockers and make plays in the backfield, eats blocks and effective at times against double teams. Will, however, need to drop some bad weight and lean out in college, which should happen once he's eating at a training table and working with a strength coach. Also needs to improve overall pad level. Has the looks of an ideal nose tackle for a 3-4 defense and should be able to develop into a multi-year contributor for a Power 5 program. So kind of mentioned last week, and you know, many out there consider Watson to be one of those you know big under, big-time underrated three-star um uh recruits out there he dominated camp circuits before covid uh was really rated high something interesting here will you know he was really rated high by 24 7 sports in his initial ranking with a gate with a grade of 94.18 i went back and looked right now that would be good for a four-star ranking and the 127th best player in the country uh, on 24 7 sports so um uh, that's for their composite for the 2021 class Right now, the composite has him graded as a three-star, 88.91. So about a four-point drop and in the 354th best player in the country. So that would be a drop from about 127, 127th best player to the 354th best player in the country. The composite has him as the 21st best defensive tackle in the country. Uh, 24-7 sports soul rankings has him as the 457th best player in the country and 30th defensive tackle. 
Uh, where his composite score goes up, Will, is in his rivals ranking. His rivals list him as a four-star, 18th best defensive tackle in the country. And ESPN also lists him as a four-star. So a little difference in, in – uh, there's a little difference in, in the services uh, between 24-7 rivals and ESPN. About the only knock on him is his weight, uh, you know, but that can – that's going to help him be the type of player Florida wants him to be. You know, Florida doesn't have or hasn't had um, the type of player that he is at defensive tackle. He, he he can shed some weight, of course, that was mentioned, and put on some more muscle. But you you want that guy to be the big plug in the middle, um, and, and it can also get into the backfield. So, you know, you pair that with you know, four defensive linemen that Florida has uh, committed right now, Tyreek Sapp. Hopefully the Gators can keep him committed there. Defensive end Justice Boone. Um, and Christopher Thomas uh, as well with Watson. So, you know, Sap Boone can play inside and out, but mostly strong side uh, defensive end position. Thomas can play uh, inside pass rusher with some quickness there. So Watson's a good compliment to those guys, Will, 6'6", 350, play over the center as a true nose tackle. Uh, and Watson will be, be able to, to take, take on some double teams and, and plug the hole and free up some others along the defensive line. Yeah, I mean, in a three-four defense, obviously that's really important to be able to do that. I think anytime you're getting you're getting compared to Terrence Cody, that's that's probably a good thing. Um, and if weight's the problem, just get him next to Ethan White, and, and that should all be taken care of. Because obviously, White did a really nice job last year uh, of taking off the weight and getting ready and getting out there on the field. I think the interesting thing is, is you get a guy who's six-six, three-fifty, and then you put him next to a guy like Gravon Dexter, who's listed, you know, at six-six and a half, two eighty-six. And you sort of can envision the type of the type of defensive front that Florida had with Dominique Easley and Sharif Floyd. Obviously, those guys were both much higher ranked than than uh, than Watson. But at the same time, I mean, that's really what you're looking for is you need a guy who can take up take up a double team and can get push up the middle. And then you need a guy who's fast and can, sort of has that fast first step. And and I think we have that with Dexter. So, you know, uh, again, you want to pile up guys up front to build depth. Watson's a really good player. People are going to look at it and go, Oh, a three-star, but he's 354. You mentioned he was ranked much, much higher earlier in the process. COVID makes these rankings. I mean, as much as I subscribe to them does make them a little bit goofy because you haven't had the opportunity to do the same kind of camps and analysis and sort of set the final setting. And then the other thing is from the standpoint of making it to the NFL, I don't think there's a whole lot of difference between a guy ranked a hundredth and a guy ranked 300th. I think at the end of the day, that's where the coaching starts to really become a major deal. I think if you got a bunch of five-star guys, you know, you don't need to do a whole lot of coaching. You put them out there and on their on their athletic ability, they're able to make it to the NFL. It's when you get to the guys who sort of jump around from, you know, 120th to 250th and then they drop down to 350 and then they go back up to 289. It's like, okay, that's the guy where, you know, clearly there is some um, – there's some variability within those ranges and, and Watson right now, they just happen to have on the low end of those ranges. So, um, you know, I, I suspect that based on, based on what people have talked about in terms of his ability to dominate some of these camps that had he had an opportunity to play a senior year, maybe he still does, but you know, if, if he has an opportunity to play, he's probably going to climb up those charts, but again, big bodies on the inside, those guys are hard to rank, right? I mean, if you're trying to rank them next to a running back, I, I feel like the running backs always going to get ranked higher just because the space eater isn't the guy who gets the glory, but let's be honest. Those are the guys that you need. You need guys in the trenches and you're not always going to get five star guys. Obviously you want them, but you're not always going to to get them and this is a very solid addition for florida yep and um where well, i want to go back and look at the 2020 class as well and and uh, add 
all that to the 2020 class. You know, this can, includes uh, five-star Jervon Dexter, Antoine Powell, Prince Lee Yuman Milan, uh, defensive tackles Lamar Goods and, um, and Jalen Lee. So, you know, I like to make up with the reputation of Dan Mullen-led teams always being strong on the defensive front, uh, a good starting point for years to come. Uh, you know, if history is any indication of the development they'll get with David Turner and Todd Grantham. So, of course, the big news this week, Will, and we'll wrap up the episode here, uh, the commitments of the the Palmetto kids. Um, you know, now you know, maybe the, the not-so-good news part of uh, recruiting here. So you guys have heard me talk about the, the Miami Palmetto group for months now, uh, and their commitments are coming up. Defensive lineman Leonard Taylor, thought to be a long time. Florida Lean will commit on – Thursday, August 6th. So today for many of you out there, if you listen to the podcast version, uh, look to be choosing Miami uh, with all the recent intel, That's if that's to be believed out there. Safety Corey Collier will be, will be deciding on August 10th. Gators look to be in good shape there, but uh, I still have to fend off LSU and Miami. Uh, we'll see where that one goes. And then Jason Marshall might be committing any day now. Uh, another one that um, many had a Florida lean that now looks like he may go elsewhere to either Miami or Alabama. Um, Miami looks to be in the lead there for his services. So, well, I mean, look, some of these losing some of these guys will obviously sting, uh, especially, you know, if we're to believe that the Gators were in great shape for a long while, with these guys also sting because you'd be losing out on some really sought after players. You know, this is just isn't, it isn't just losing, out on highly ranked players. We, we talk recruiting rankings and all that, but you know, these are players this Florida staff has put a lot of time and effort into, so you know these the staff wants these guys. Uh, guys they've identified to be high-level players and, and near the top of their, their own personal board. So, you know, it stinks because, you know, whichever players decide to go elsewhere, you know, it, it's high-level in-state talent choosing to go elsewhere, and, and this time it may, may not be recruiting juggernauts Alabama out, uh, Georgia, Clemson, Ohio State. It would be Miami, an in-state team. You're better than you beat them on the field last year, and and a team, but that, but uh, that's a team that's hot on the trail right now. Um, and these kids are in Miami's backyard. And, yeah, but this is a Miami team that went six and seven last season with, with losses to, to Florida, and then later on to FIU and showed out against Louisiana Tech in a bowl game. Yet they're being able to sell their program to these kids. And is COVID a reason? It certainly could be, probably is. Uh, but Miami's putting themselves in position to, you know, to, to be in the mix here and, and many predicting that they'll be the choice for Taylor and Marshall coming up. So, you know, and I keep seeing, and I put this out on Twitter, you know, wait till the games are played. Well, they were last season, and that's not really hurting Miami on the trail right now. Uh, com coming up, we'll see how it all plays out. Now, maybe they'll stink it up again, and if these guys commit to Miami, then they'll maybe maybe they reconsider a com commitment to Florida later on down the road. But you know, but then you know, Miami can play the, the the tone of come play early, and this is why we need players like you. So we'll see how it all plays out. You know, decisions haven't been made yet. That's just the way everybody's hearing and, and leaning right now. Um, these kids still have a decision to make, but it, it's not looking good on the Gator side. You know, hopefully some trolling going on uh, uh, out there and the Gators end up with them. But uh, look, I, I put this out there uh, on Twitter last week. Dan Mullen will win games. He's a, too good of a coach not to win games. He will. But uh, I have very little doubt of that. But, you know, a, a team like Miami may not win because they, they you know, if they can't develop these, these players here. But what if it's these same players that that can be the difference for, for Mullen and, and they're wasting away somewhere else? You know, it's these type of players you spend a lot of time on identifying and recruiting as high-level players. And that could be the difference from going to 10 and 11 wins to 14, 15 wins, Will. Yeah, I mean, so I, I wrote about that 
earlier this week, just looking at, you know, people keep asking why is Florida struggling with recruiting? And there are excuses thrown out there about facilities and about spending. And obviously Georgia's spending a lot more money than Florida on recruiting, but Miami's not. Notre Dame's not. Oklahoma's not. Um, and so it's not just a money thing. I don't think it's just a staff thing either. I mean, I think that there's um, there are things the staff could obviously do better. There are things that Mullen could do better when it comes to recruiting, but I don't think it's necessarily just a staff thing. It's certainly not showing it on the field because the guy's won everywhere he's been and he's turned the Florida program into something where people are predicting that Florida is going to potentially compete for a playoff this year. So you'd figure that would start to get people to to really take notice and it just hasn't really taken hold. And I think what it really boils down to is sort of what I, you know, in the article I mentioned that at work, I've got guys that I interface with who are naturally born salesmen. And those guys right now are still killing it. Even though COVID's going on and even though they got to sit at home, they have relationships with their customers that allow them to call them up and get information and push sales through. And, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, all those sorts of things. Right. And they've had the they've built those relationships over time. And then you've got guys who that's just a little bit more difficult. They have di- a different set of skills. Right. And it's not that they're not that they're bad salesmen. It's just that they're their skills are not, it's not natural. It doesn't come natural to them. And so now with COVID, what you're finding is that, you know, there are some fissures in the relationships, not necessarily because of their fault, but just because that's the way they kind of operate and that they're not, they don't naturally become best friends with their customers. I think that's kind of what we're seeing now, right? Is that Dan Mullen, I think, I think he's proven thus far in his time at Florida is not a natural recruiter. He's not somebody who immediately gets along with everybody that, that comes in the door. It takes a while to get to know him you got to sort of warm up to him um you know i I quoted a couple of a couple of parts from urban meyer's book with with, uh, buddy martin just looking at you know meyer kind of having to recruit people in spite of mullen as opposed to recruiting him with mullen and you hear a quote like that and go all right well now maybe that's what's going on right is the and the the interesting thing is meyer talked about everybody loving mullen when they left the problem was getting them there so that they could so that they could become really good friends with him. And and that's kind of what we're running into now, right? Is that I I think when you when you boil down recruiting to Zoom meetings and being on the phone and sort of being a natch being a natural when it comes to building relationships, that's not Mullen's strength. And that doesn't mean he's a bad coach. It doesn't mean that Florida needs somebody else. It just means that's kind of the reality. And you look at Manny Diaz, and obviously I think we would all say that Mullen has much more of a track record in terms of success. Even when you look at Diaz's defensive coordinator days, there were some years where he had some pretty bad defenses and and sort of bounced around a little bit. But you know, no one has ever questioned his recruiting bona fides or his ability to build relationships, and that's what we're seeing at Miami. So um, it is what it is. It's kind of where Florida is at this point. I don't think it's going to be repaired by changing people on the staff. I don't think it's going to be repaired by facilities or just dumping money into things. I think it's probably just the reality of things. And the disturbing thing is, is that when you look at where Florida is, so they're ranked 10th right now, but they have 23 commits. And Miami's right behind them with 20. But if Miami gets the two Palmetto guys, they're going to go flying up uh, flying up past them. Texas is at 12th with 15 commits. Notre Dame is at 13th with 15 commits. Oklahoma's at 14th with 13 commits. Georgia's at 15th with 11 commits. And A&M is at 16th with 13 commits. So all of those teams are likely going to jump in front of Florida. And you're looking at, you know, 16th, 17th in the country nationally, you know, 7th or 8th in the SEC. And, you know, 
Mullen talks about wanting to win thumb wrestling. If you, if you have a thumb wrestling competition, well, recruiting in the SEC is more important than winning a thumb wrestling match. And so it's, it's going to have to improve. I don't, I don't know how you do that though, in a, in a pandemic that really sort of exacerbates maybe one of the things that he's just not natural at. Yeah. And we'll see, uh, of course, we'll see how everything plays out. Uh, one to look for is uh, Tamise Adelie committed to Ohio State, um, close to Kamar Wilcoxon. I don't know if he'll have much say in it, but, uh, you know, there's another uh, talk of him maybe reclassifying as well. Uh, and if he does reclassify, maybe Florida's in the mix more so um, uh, than when he committed to Ohio State a few months ago. Uh, and look, I'm sure, you know, we uh, there'll be some players who shoot up on the board later on in recruitment, um, you know, like going into uh, – Last year, not you know, not long before National Signing Day, a lot of us hadn't heard of uh, Prince of Human Meland, and he ends up <laughs> a Gator. So you, you'll have some players who who come on, come off the board, go on the board, uh, but you know, right now the the focus is on the, the Palmetto guys because so much focus was put on them by the coaching staff um, that um, we we know those were were big time targets for the Gators, and uh, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Uh, Corey Collier to safety there, probably the Florida Gators' best chance uh, of getting one of from uh, the uncommitted guys, and that the guys that are committing soon, uh, the best chance uh, to end up in orange and blue. So, man, Will, that was a jam-packed episode. <laughs> There's a lot going on, man. So, you know, between global pandemics and and f- the floods up here and, and uh, you know, you trying to trick me about the NBA and our sponsor, I, I think we're uh, – we did pretty well. Balls, Will, balls. <laughs> hey, go buy it. I'm telling you, he's going he's gonna to get desperate and do a demo for everybody. <laughs> there will be none of that. <laughs> you can start a Patreon and people have to contribute to, <laughs> to, to prevent the demo from happening. Uh, well, no, uh, read reaction. I'll let you uh, pop that uh, early in the episode. What's coming up? Yeah, so we've got another uh, another Give Him Hell Pell episode coming up the next day or so, and then um, I've got some new tools to break down film, and I'm hoping to hoping to break those out sometime this weekend. So we'll see we'll see what happens at my real job, but uh, I, I think it'll be it'll be good. I think people will enjoy it. It's a, it's a good teaching tool to sort of look at the film, break it down, and and look at what's actually happening. Mullen did some really interesting things this year this past year with, with uh, Kyle Pitts. And I expect he'll be able to do some of that in, in 2020. And I look forward to seeing it. Yeah. Uh, will sent me a preview of that. So you guys will really, really like uh, what, what you see there. Uh, some, some good stuff coming from Will. You've, you've seen, if you've read his, read his articles for the last couple of years, uh, the, the gifts that he puts on there. Well, this, this would be, this would be a step up uh, in, in the production for Will and, and what he's able to provide at reading reaction. So you guys will definitely, definitely uh, get a kick at kick out of that you can follow will on twitter at will miles sec and his site read and reaction.com i'm the host of gators breakdown david waters you can find me on twitter at gator dave underscore sec guys and girls out there thanks for listening to this episode of gators breakdown <laughs>